Welcome to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended as a training tool for Children's Hospital and Medical Center personnel. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Complete information regarding the podcast, including its limitations on usage, is available under the episode description. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Ortman. Welcome to Healing Hearts. I'm a pediatric intensivist at Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And welcome to our first podcast. The purpose of this channel is to empower pediatric providers to provide the best care for our critically ill children as well as taking care of ourselves. My series of talks is going to be about cardiac lesions, specifically what they are, what they look like, and most importantly for picky providers, what are their most common complications postoperatively and how do we manage them? When I say picky providers, I'm talking about anybody that provides clinical care to critically ill kids. This is bedside nurses, medical students, advanced practice providers, residents, fellows. I'm hoping even intending physicians might get something out of this series of talks. For our first episode, I'm going to be talking about Tetralogy of Fallot, so let's go ahead and get started. Tetralogy of Fallot consists of four different anatomic abnormalities. Number one, a VSD. Number two, overriding of the aorta over the ventricular septum. Number three, right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, or pulmonary stenosis, which can occur at multiple different levels. And number four, right ventricular hypertrophy, which is secondary to the pulmonary stenosis. Now, this can be a wide spectrum of disease, anywhere from mild pulmonary stenosis that essentially acts like a VSD, all the way to pulmonary atresia, where there isn't a connection between the right ventricle and the pulmonary arteries. I'm not going to be talking about pulmonary atresia today. That is a different beast in the ICU, and we'll talk about that at a later time. Tetralogy also has multiple other associations. You may see tetralogy of flow with AV canals, right aortic arch. There's another entity called tetralogy flow with absent pulmonary valve. I won't be talking about that today because that has its own postoperative issues. Tetralogy is also associated with coronary abnormalities. Tetralogy is diagnosed prenatally about two-thirds of the time. If you think about a second trimester, normal prenatal ultrasound, what are they looking for? Well, they're looking to see, does the patient have four chambers, and does the baby have two outflows from the heart? If the pulmonary stenosis isn't severe, if the VSD isn't noticed, it's possible, it's possible to miss this. So about a third of the babies are born without a diagnosis. So let's say you're in the newborn nursery, this baby's come out, they have no reason to think there's anything wrong. Would you see anything or hear anything on exam immediately that would tell you this baby potentially has heart disease? Well, number one, are they gonna be cyanotic? If you remember back to your training, there was a mnemonic as far as what are the cyanotic congenital heart disease, the cyanotic T's, tetralogy, transposition, TAPVR, truncus, are thought of cyanotic diseases. But with tetralogy, the degree of cyanosis is very dependent on the degree of pulmonary stenosis. Some of these babies not, may not be cyanotic at all. And after birth, as the PDA may often still be open for a while, there may be adequate pulmonary blood flow and the cyanosis may not be severe, even those with a small RV outflow tract. And honestly, newborn babies are kind of funny color anyway, so the cyanosis may not be readily apparent immediately. Now that pulse ox screening is becoming more common, these are usually picked up. How about when listening to the heart? These babies will have a murmur. 
However, it is not the murmur of the VSD. These VSDs are typically large without a significant gradient across them and so don't make any noise. What you'll hear is a systolic ejection murmur at the left upper mid-sternal border. This is the murmur of the pulmonary stenosis, which is typically how these kids were picked up prior to pulse ox screening. So let's pretend for a moment that this child born with tetralogy of Fallot wasn't picked up in the newborn period and went home. How would they present later in life? What is the natural history of tetralogy of Fallot that's not fixed? If the pulmonary stenosis is relatively mild, they actually may present with congestive heart failure from pulmonary overcirculation, much like a child with just a large VSD would. They would present with difficulty feeding, failure to thrive into tachypnea. If the pulmonary stenosis is enough to balance the pulmonary and systemic circulation, they may be asymptomatic for quite some time. However, the RV outflow tra tract obstruction will get worse over time. The baby will become increasingly blue and eventually present with cyanosis. Let's talk about TET spells for a minute. So what are TET spells? These are acute increases in the right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, where suddenly the patient gets minimal pulmonary blood flow, develops severe cyanosis, as well as irritability. These spells are dangerous, and if you're taking care of a patient who hasn't had their tetralogy fixed yet, we need to intervene. So how do we do that? Our goal is to increase pulmonary blood flow. If we're in the hospital, we can give that patient oxygen to try to get more blood flow to the lungs. We can push their knees to the chest. What that does is it increases both the preload that's going to the right ventricle, as well as increasing the afterload that the left ventricle is seeing in an attempt to try to push more blood flow across the VSD into the pulmonary arteries. In the hospital, a vasoconstrictor is also an option such as phenylephrine, again, to try to increase afterload to the left side of the heart, push more blood flow across that VSD into the PAs. If you ever have the opportunity to travel to parts of the world where congenital heart disease repair is not typically done, you'll see the, older, the picture of the older kids squatting as they're playing. Again, this is increasing the preload to the right side of the heart, increasing the afterload to the left side through this maneuver. Before we get into how tetralogy is re repaired in the modern era, I'm going to take a little detour into history because I think it's really important. Tetralogy was the first congenital heart lesion that anyone ever tried to palliate or repair surgically. It used to be the heart was this black box that surgeons would not enter. They didn't think you could do anything about these diseases. However, it was noted that kids with tetralogy who had a residual PDA open to provide pulmonary blood flow survived longer and did better. In the 1940s, Alfred Blaylock, Helen Tausig, and Vivian Thomas developed the first surgical palliation for congenital heart disease in the form of the VT shunt. This then provided enough pulmonary blood flow that these patients could live and have a somewhat normal quality of life. If you're bored on a Friday night, you can Netflix the movie Something the Lord Made. This was filmed in 2004 and tells the story. This was really the start of pediatric cardiac surgery and really opened up the possibilities that these patients and these kids could be treated. All right, now back to the modern era. So when did we fix these kids? You found them in the newborn nursery. The kid has tetralogy of flow, but they're not severely cyanotic. Well, if they're asymptomatic, 
and only a little bit blue or a little bit pink, the goal would be to repair them in the first year of life. If they're able to go home from the newborn nursery but develop progressive cyanosis, that would be the time to repair. Or if they're having tet spells. Having tet spells put these patients at increased risk of mortality. So if they start doing that, we typically bring them in for repair. Now, what do we do if the baby's in the newborn nursery but can't come off prostaglandins because of cyanosis? They just don't have enough pulmonary blood flow. This is an area of a little bit of controversy within the surgical community at the time of this recording. And what will happen in your ICU is dependent on your institution and your surgeon. So some centers advocate for complete repair in the neonatal period, arguing that that puts the patient under anesthetic only once and avoids a period of cyanosis while the baby in the brain is rapidly developing. Others will advocate for a palliative surgery, so placing a BT shunt to provide pulmonary blood flow. Their argument is it avoids a bypass run in the neonatal period. We think that bypass probably isn't good for a neonatal brain and that it allows for growth of smaller pulmonary arteries before a complete repair. At this time, there's data to support both ways, so I'm not going to advocate for one or the other at this time. So let's assume you're working in the PICU today and your patient's having a complete repair. So what is the surgeon gonna do? Number one, they gotta close that VSD. Number two, relieve the right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. How much work they need to do on the RV outflow tract is going to be dependent on the patient. And there's two different things you're going to hear when they bring this patient back to the ICU. They're either one, going to have had a transangular patch, or number two, a valve sparing repair. It's roughly 50-50 with each one. So what is a transannular patch? So the valve annulus, the circle in which the pulmonary valve sits, is a fibrotic ring. If that circle, if that annulus is too small to support full pulmonary blood flow, the surgeon's going to basically cut that in half, spread it open, and then put a patch over it in order to enlarge the pulmonary artery outflow. The problem with that is now you have free pulmonary insufficiency. Those valve leaflets are not going to meet in the middle. If they've had a valve sparing repair, that means the surgeon's been able to fix the right ventricular outflow tract without splitting the valve, and thus hopefully the valve would be competent. I think as the person that's taking this patient back from the surgeon, you need to know which of these operations the patient had. If they've had the transannular patch, that suggests that they had worse pulmonary obstruction, potentially more right ventricular hypertrophy, and potentially more risk for some of the postoperative complications we're going to be talking about in a minute. The other thing you need to know when the surgeon brings the patient back is whether or not they've left the ASD open or not, and whether the patient has an um, inability to shunt right to left, as that will inform me about what saturations to expect from this kid. So let's get to the post-op care of this patient. In this series of talks, with each cardiac lesions, I'm going to be talking specifically about four potential post-operative issues and whether this particular patient is at higher or lower risk of each one of those. It's gonna be one, low cardiac output, number two, pulmonary hypertension, number three, arrhythmias, number four, bleeding. So for tetralogy flow, number one, low cardiac output, higher or lower risk. Well, this 
has a lot to do with how bad the right ventricular outflow tract obstruction was prior to surgery. Now, when we think of low cardiac output syndrome in the ICU, we often think of the myocardium of a systemic ventricle that's not squeezing very well. Well, that's generally not what you're going to see in your postoperative TET patient. The left ventricle really hasn't been affected too much by this surgery, unless it was a very long bypass run, it's probably going to be functioning reasonably well. The low cardiac output problem that we have with this patient is going to be due to that RV hypertrophy, RV diastolic dysfunction. So this RV is big and thick. It's been used to squeezing against really high pressure. That pressure has been relieved, but that ventricle is still very stiff. It's going to have trouble filling with blood, it's going to have trouble relaxing. It's going to squeeze just fine. The systolic function is probably going to be okay, but that diastolic function is potentially going to get this kid into trouble, especially if they had significant RV outflow tract obstruction prior to surgery. So what is this going to look like at the bedside? Well, like other forms of low cardiac output, it's going to show as hypotension, potentially tachycardia, cool extremities, lactic acidosis but you'll also see signs of right-sided failure. So ascites, big belly, ileus, babies having trouble feeding postoperatively, vomiting, as well as an enlarged liver. To treat this, your patient may need significantly higher CVP or right atrial pressures than your other post-op cardiac patients will. It may potentially be in the mid to high teens. I've also seen kids require CVPs in the low 20s in order to have good cardiac output. So if your patient is hypotensive in the first couple of days postoperatively, fluid may be your friend. Milrinone can also be used to aid with myocardial relaxation. Now there's also an entity I've seen a few times in my career of late RV dysfunction with postoperative tetralogy of flows. Typically, we think of low cardiac output syndrome occurring the first postoperative night, but I've seen multiple of these kids get into trouble with their RV dysfunction two, three days down the road. So it's something to watch out for. All right, so post-op, potential post-op complication number two, pulmonary hypertension. Do we have to worry about that with tetralogy of flow? Tetralogy of flow patients are less likely to have difficulties with pulmonary hypertension postoperative compared to other patients. If you think about it, what makes pulmonary hypertension worse? Well, high flows and high pressures into your pulmonary arteries preoperatively. Because of the pulmonary stenosis, the pulmonary vascular bed has been protected, so they're less likely to have difficulties with pulmonary hypertension. Now, they did undergo, undergo a bypass run, and all patients who undergo bypass are at risk of having increased pulmonary vascular resistance for a period of time afterwards. And oxygen is not a bad thing in these patients, even though their pulmonary hypertension risk is low. That oxygen can help that struggling RV. When it comes to their lungs, this is also a patient population that extubating early is probably in their best interest. Positive pressure ventilation increases the afterload on the right ventricle, and if a right ventricle is already a bit strained, as well as having difficulty maintaining preload, getting them off the ventilator earlier can help. Postoperative complication number three, arrhythmias. This is a big one in tetralogy of flow, especially those that are repaired younger have significant RV dysfunction. Junctional ectopic tachycardia, or JET, is one of the most common postoperative tachyarrhythmias that we see in the ICO. Depending on the series that you look at, JET has been 
recorded anywhere from 5 to 30% of TET patients after their surgery. JET is a narrow complex tachyarrhythmia, often in the 160s to low 200s range. It results from an automatic focus around the AV node. And what happens is these patients lose AV synchrony. Their atrium and their ventricle are no longer beating together. If you have a patient with an unhappy myocardium like you may in your tetralogy of patients, this can be a really big deal. One, that stiff right ventricle needs more time to fill, needs more time to get its preload. That tachycardia is not gonna help with that process. The loss of atrial kick can also significantly affect the ability of the RV to fill. So jet in a TET patient can be a serious problem. And it's definitely something to watch closely for. Can we prevent jet? Well, keeping the patient on the cooler side is in not letting them get febrile, keeping their pain well controlled so they don't develop intrinsic catecholamines, which makes jet worse, can all be helpful. If the patient does develop JET, currently amiodarone is the drug of choice. The other post-op arrhythmia that you may see in these patients is complete heart block. That VSD patch is close to the AV node and can sometimes be damaged with this. Somewhere in the low single digits, 4-5% of patients may come out with complete heart block and temporary pacing. Almost all of these will recover, and less than 1% of patients will need a temporary pacemaker. Potential postoperative complication number four, bleeding. Some tetralogy patients may be at higher risk of this than others. One, if they had a neonatal palliation, if they've already had a surgery, a second surgery puts them at higher risk of bleeding. Number two, if they had severe cyanosis, they may be at higher risk of bleeding than other patients as well. The lungs want blood, and they'll get it from anywhere that they can. If they're not getting it from the heart, they'll form collaterals. So when the surgeon goes in to do that operation, these collaterals get sliced. They're more likely to bleed, bleed. more likely to bleed afterwards. Fortunately, most tetralogy of patients do very well. A Pink tet that didn't have significant comorbidities will hopefully be starting to eat the first postoperative night and potentially may be out of your ICU by the next day. Even those patients with severe cyanosis and a lot of RV dysfunction generally don't stay in the ICU longer than a week. And that is the care of Tetralogy of Fallot. I hope you learned something out of this episode. Uh, if you did, please leave something in the comments for us and we'll see you next time. For more information about Children's Hospital and Medical Center, visit childrensomaha.org. Thanks for listening to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers.